Hello and welcome. This is Aspen Answered with your host today, Eric Martin. Additional host today is Chelsea Wooding and our lovely host, our third host, who's our student host, Katie Johnson. We're here today with Dr. Dan Gould, Gwyn Norell Professor of Youth Sports and Student Athlete Wellbeing Emeritus and former director of the Institute for the Study of Youth Sport. We're all really excited to talk to Dr. Gould. Dr. Gould, thanks so much for answering our call to come on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So today, what we'd like to start off with is just a 30-second elevator pitch bio about where you are now, and we'll get to where you've been and how you got here in a second, but just kind of where are you at right now? Yeah, I'm um, recently retired, so this is, uh, I think I've been retired for 10 weeks now, but I'm, as you said, I'm a former professor of kinesiology specializing in sport and exercise psychology at Michigan State, and I directed the Institute for the Study of Youth Sports at uh, Michigan State until the summer. Um, most of my research has, over the years, focused on um, uh, sports psychology. Probably two themes. In the er first half of my career, I did a lot on elite sport, but I always did work on youth sports all the way through. And then when I moved back to Michigan State in uh, 2004, I focused about 90% of my work on youth sports, and especially looking at uh, life skills and the psychology of coaching as it affects young athletes. Great. Thanks, Dan. Congratulations on your retirement. Wow. Thanks. I'm sure we could do a whole podcast just about that transition and, and that experience, especially only 10 weeks in. That's got to be a big... Yeah. Um, Once I figure it out, we might want to do the podcast right now. It's like, Okay. That's fair. It's a little too new at this point. That's fair. Uh, well, Dr. Gold, in our podcast, we are really hoping to get a better understanding of how key figures like yourself got to where they are today. Um, so can you give us, now that we know where you're at currently, can you give us a bit of your background on your path that got you there? Yeah. Um, I grew up in upstate New York in a place called Oswego, New York, where I was an athlete kind of an average student. I didn't study very much, but I love sports, so I never missed a day of high school. I didn't have the loftiest goals. I thought I'd go to college to be a coach and physical education teacher, and this is the not lofty part because I thought I get to do sports and you didn't have to work that hard and you had summers off. <laughs> and then I got into college and I found out physical education was a profession if you did it right and you know, it kind of changed my view. But even that was uh, some luck. I was going to go to a, a traditional school in New York, Cortland State, and I had talked to the wrestling coach because I was very motivated by sport. And he said I'd get in, and then I got rejected in the middle of the summer. And a former high school guidance counselor said, hey, I'll, get you, I'll, I'll write a, a note to Brockport State. I went to Brockport. And what was crazy at the time, Brockport, this little school in upstate New York with about 8,000 students, was kind of leading the country in a shift from physical education to sports science. And they brought in like, a, uh, he's retired now, but Dan Landers, who became quite a well-known sports psych person, Bob Christina. So I got exposed to all these great young uh, sports science professors, particularly in sports psych. And that was just luck. I mean, I didn't know I was going to Brockport till two weeks before. I got involved in research and did a lot of things. I met my doctoral advisor, Reiner Martins came to campus. Uh, Landers had an Illinois connection. Um, so I ended up doing very well. And, you know, I was, wasn't that good of a student in high school. And then I studied a lot in college. And I ended up with a 
So then they all said, well, he's going to go on and get a PhD. I didn't know if I wanted to. So then I, uh, Dan Landers moved to the University of Washington, Seattle. I went out there and got my master's degree. And then I studied with Reiner Martins at the University of Illinois. Um, those were really great experience. I believe in a mentor approach to, you know, a graduate education. Uh, Reiner Martins was a huge figure. He shifted me from like fearing failure all the time, even though I was successful, to kind of being excited and about what I didn't know. Uh, so he was a huge figure. Um, and then I started to do some coaching clinics with him. And probably the one thing throughout my career, I think, that distinguished me from a lot of my classmates, I always applied what I was getting in class to my experiences in sport, like how to beat anxiety or why some guys are motivated and others are not. Um, and then I, I was 25 when I graduated and came to Michigan State. Uh, which was quite humorous at the time because I looked about 12. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, my first grad class, I think I was the youngest by 10 years in it and um, ended up liking teaching. And that started my teaching career. I was at MSU five years, got tenure. Then I went to Kansas State for a few years, then went to uh, Illinois, then North Carolina, Greensboro, and then circled back to Michigan State. All those were sort of great experiences. I, I never intended to move from any place, but opportunities came up. Um, I've been pretty lucky to have really good people at all those places. Um, so that, and then, you know, got involved with different organizations. And that kind of brings to me where we are today. I don't know if that's too brief or too long. I think that's great, Dan. I, I I appreciate your thought of like, you don't have to be the super student all the way through to be successful in this field. You just have to find something that you really love and you want to expand on that a little bit. Um, so you talked a lot about your academic pathways, but I know you have quite a bit of consulting experiences as well. Could you just give kind of a brief overview of kind of your consulting experiences in the sports psych realm? Yeah. Um, back in the day, you know, a lot of years ago, Nobody had training in the applied area. And I remember I was teaching at Michigan State and maybe my second year. And I got a, a call from a gentleman named Dozier Thornton, who was a, a professor in clinical psych. And they had a young figure skater that was very nervous and she was throwing up so much on the ice from the nerves. And they called me and he said, I heard you do some kind of sports psych. I got this kid we don't know what to do with. So would you see her? So I started seeing her and worked with her. It was actually, and I didn't know what I was doing, but I said, well, I'll try to help you. <laughs> She's like 11 years old. What am I going to not help her? Uh, actually kind of a funny story because she came over, really nice girl, but she did have a lot of anxiety issues. I tried relaxation training because it's about the only thing I knew. She told me she didn't feel like, like to feel like rubber. So, <laughs> so then I said, well, let's talk next time. <laughs> and I went and studied more cognitive techniques and, <laughs> Um, ended up working pretty well with her. I mean, it was a long haul, but she, we got her so she didn't throw up on the ice anymore. And actually about, uh, 15 years later, she called me up one day and she was a figure skating coach. So, uh, that got the, the hook in it. And then I started working with some wrestlers. Um, I always was driven by the applied. I really loved the research. I love to teach, but I got into this cause like as an athlete myself, I remember high school football. I couldn't understand why some of the guys on the team didn't want to work as hard as I did. 
Mm-hmm. And a couple of them that I played ahead of were when they tried were better than I was. So like, I go, why don't you just quit or like just give an effort? Um, and when I was a high school captain, I wasn't sure how to motivate guys like that. You know, I didn't know what to do. And then as a young high school and then college wrestler, I, I, I didn't have, I get very, very anxious. It, it wasn't like I was choking all the time or anything, but I'd always start off really slow. And then I got in great shape because I like sometimes be down a point because I was tight and then I'd come back. So uh, as I started to get sports psych as an undergrad, those questions like stuck with me and like, how do you, mot- how do you help people be motivated? Um, and actually some of those have shaped my careers. We've developed a, a program for high school sport captains to teach them things that I wish I knew. Um, and then over the years I worked with, um, some different sports. Uh, I remember a lady, Vi Hopkins in Michigan, called me, wanted to work on dressage riding. So I went to the stables and they taught me how to ride. And well, I got on the horse. And um, <laughs> Why have and, I never seen pictures of that? That's- yeah. And uh, that was really interesting. Uh, and actually, of everything I've ever consulted on, I think equestrian is the most interesting. Like mm. one thing I learned there, you know, uh, and people who haven't worked with equestrian sports don't get it. But horses have personalities. And like they put me on this old school horse that they, you know, put initial riders on, on what they call the lunge line. So I'm going around in a circle and they got, you know, the horse is hooked up so it can't run up. And I kind of virtually fell into the right position. And the horse picked up to a canter from like a a slow walk. And what that taught me is the horse could feel when you're in the right position. Yeah. And a lot of riding, I always thought it was with the reins, but it's really with your legs. Hmm. And if you get anxiety and then get tension in your legs, the horse feels it. Um, and I did, I mean, it was a real interesting. Then I spent time in the barns and looked at how people treated their horses. And, and then some funny things, like they had a vacuum cleaner hung from the s- ceiling to vacuum off the horses. <laughs> you know, just stuff like crazy stuff. But that was really interesting. And then I got a call from a coach in Detroit to work with ice dancers, uh, national level. I started working with them. I worked with them a number of years. I ended up doing work with wrestling. When I was down in Greensboro, I worked with the, uh, the baseball team that was the top 25 D1 team for about 10 years. That was all group stuff. I worked uh, with the U.S. ski team for about 10 or 15 years and actually went to Nagano Olympics with them. Um, I've really enjoyed working with athletes in all different sports. And whether it's an Olympic athlete or I, I give you a great story. One of the most rewarding consults I ever had is for a skater who came in at senior level, last at the senior level in U.S. figure skating nationals. Mm. He had a, he was very good at a younger age and then he had a serious injury and he was thinking about quitting, but then he was struggling because it was like unfinished business. So just for him making it to nationals and to have a good skate, even though he came in last was probably as rewarding to me because uh, he walked off and, you know, he could leave the sport feeling he gave it at all. Um, yeah, and, and then I've worked with people who won Olympic gold medals, and, and that's really cool too. But it, you know, if you work with somebody with a gold medal, everybody wants to talk to you. If you work with somebody who comes in 
last at nationals, even though it's a great, you know, he, we did really good work with him and he did, he did the work, but it's just funny that way, you know, outcome kind of, if you work with a famous athlete, you must be really good. Mm. If you work with the bad news bears, you know, nobody cares. Yeah, it's so ironic to hear that, that even the people who are consulting with athletes and know the value of those process goals still look at those outcomes and sometimes get caught up in them. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and realistically, you need to be. I remember talking to the great Ken Revisa, and he was working with one sport that administratively was a wreck. And he said he loved the athletes and he worked with them to Olympics. But he, he said, like, I'm not going to work with them again, even though I love the athletes, because the administrative cost us medals every time. Hmm. And I don't want my reputation being like the guy who doesn't deliver because he thought they sure. were doing great work, but the administration would screw things up. So, you know, I think you need to be aware of that as going forward. I always say the you know, best way to build a reputation in a sports psych is get really good athletes and work with them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I appreciate the reminder of the value of working with people at all levels at anywhere on that scale that there's there's true value and um, uh, the word is is escaping me forgive me but it's just so rewarding um, doing good work at any level yeah uh, and being there to come alongside people and you learn I mean I, I think the other thing from consulting I've always learned so much from consulting like even right now I'm working with a young uh, field hockey player you know, she's a senior now. And, and actually directing the Institute for the last number of years. This kid is really a good kid. And we've done a lot of work. I think we've had 65 meetings over the last year. And she's got so much talent and she doesn't have problems. It's more, you know, getting stronger. But the culture is so uh, outcome oriented. So you don't go to camps. You go to... Uh, um, um, showcases so the college coaches can come and see you. So you go to these camps and you pay a lot of money and the whole focus is on having college coaches see you. And I'm going, that's crazy. You've got these college coaches coaching you. You should be going to get better. And if they see you, great. But it really struck me how much, in, and I'm not just picking on that sport, but it's so easy to say keep a task orientation. But she and I have, uh, you know, she does the work. And she's really got a good head on her shoulders. Mm. But uh, we've had to work together so she doesn't get sucked up in this environment. So you go to one of these camps and they go, this coach is here and this coach is here. I go, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. You got to play and you got to get better. Um, so that's been really valuable to me, realize the pressure on kids today uh, with the outcome focus. And, you know, we I, I feel... I'm doing good work, but part of the reason I'm doing good work is because this kids are really good. I mean, she's really fun to work with. You know, I mean, it's like she's got it figured out, great leadership. But it, it just, if she's struggling, given how much she has it together, I couldn't imagine if you had a, uh, a pushy parent who was outcome focused and you're outcome focused. It's like, wow, you're going to be a stress basket. Absolutely. Oh, I could listen to you talk all the time, Dan. I want to shift gears a little bit now to 
um, kind of the more aspect of your presidential service. And so we want to kind of get a snapshot prior to your presidential service, more or less. So I know you were kind of at the beginning of when ASK started, but how would you describe the field of sports psychology um, and really ASP? Well, if ASP was around prior to you running for president, um, maybe things that were relevant or significant that stood out, but how was this, the field before you kind of led the, the Association for Applied Sports Psychology? Well, I mean, a lot of people led it. I kind of jumped in, but I, I was around the early days. I wasn't there for the initial meeting, kind of a crazy thing. I was in Walnut Creek, California, sitting over a toilet, having food poisoning, wish I knew I was dead. <laughs> <laughs> so I couldn't go to the meeting, but I went to all the meetings after that. And what happened is NASPA, um, it was sort of the main group and a number of people, you know, the years before, research was sort of the main thing, and nobody was really interested too much in application. I think a lot of us were interested, but the profession wasn't there. And so people were becoming more interested in application and wanted NASPA to, to consider, like, should they be doing professional issue things? And NASPA voted not to, which has worked out pretty well for NASPA. I mean, they have a real good focus. Um but then John Silva went and got a group together and talked about starting ASP. And so that's how ASP started. Um, in the early years, what was interesting is, like, I remember Bill Morgan, who was a famous uh, sports psych person at Wisconsin, uh, Rod Dishman, who's an exercise psych now, but they were saying we shouldn't be working with athletes because we don't have any intervention knowledge base. And there was a lot of fighting about that. I remember telling them, well, can you show me the evidence you have that your courses at Wisconsin change your students' lives? And, you know, like, it's well, okay, nice. so you don't have evidence, so we don't. <laughs> uh, so there were some battles going on. I w it wasn't like I was leading the battle, but, I mean, there was a lot of pressure. But it, it, uh, the applied kind of grew. ASP kind of grew. Uh, John Silva did a lot of uh, initially good work and got a lot of good people involved. Um, when I came in, um, I think I was elected uh, president of ASP because the researchers liked me and respected me enough and the practitioners knew I was a researcher, couldn't quite understand why I did that stuff, but trusted me enough. <laughs> so I think I was sort of like the bridge candidate that had trust on both sides. There was a lot of tension between research and practice. Um, and then I remember that I was, you know, president-elect Bob Weinberg was the president before me. So that really helped because we're good buddies. Um, but I remember my year of either before being president or the year of president sitting in a room with Ken Revisa and Terry Orlick for like eight hours, convincing them not to leave the organization and that wow. we should do this together and... You know, there was a lot of just trying to get people on board. Hmm. Um, in those days, we ran the conventions. So I remember sitting in the hotel in Savannah uh, when I ran it. We had 350 people, but making sure people didn't have problems checking to the hotel, checking out, having a being having my mind mind blown when a professional me member tried to sneak into the banquet because they didn't register. I mean, there was just stuff that like. Okay. Um, but those were the early days. And um, I think the biggest, and, and then when I was president, it's when certification passed. And there was a lot of politics 
and there was a lot of maybe having our ducks lined up. Um, and, and one thing I, you know, as you get older, you need to be careful. Like, oh, back in the day we did this. It was different back in the day. But one thing I thought in the last 10 years, sometimes I think the boards, because we're bigger and we have uh, support from the national office, you got to have your ducks lined up politically. <laughs> and you got to do a lot of work ahead of time before you bring a motion to the floor. And I think sometimes in the, in the last 10 years, sometimes the board's gotten into trouble because they haven't had to kind of do all this pre-work. <laughs> and like, okay, we need to get the fellows on board back when the fellows played a big role. So a year ahead of time, we need to be working with all the key fellows, getting them lined up. So when it comes to the fellows floor, it's not like you don't want open opinion. It's a democracy. But it's like, it, when you go in and they had know nothing about it and you throw it out to them, nothing ever gets done. You got to have yeah. the groundwork done. So there was a lot of work like that. So certification was probably the, the best. I remember the classic quote from Deb Feltz when we finally passed it. And it was a lot of compromise. She goes, oh, so this is pretty clear. You need to get a PhD in psych and you need to get a PhD in kinesiology. <laughs> and it was pretty much that's kind of where we ended up with the two fields combined. <laughs> So uh, th those were the days. I mean, uh, again, probably the research to practice fight was the biggest. Um, Dan, I'm curious. So um, I knew the, the split and I've heard about that many times, um, but I'm, I'm curious that I've never really heard about the, the keeping people in. I, I guess I always kind of perceived it as like once the split happened, everybody was on board. Could you talk a little bit about like the, the, the discussions kind of pre-split of like, is this a good idea? And then, did you have most of the people on board when you started ASK? Was it like key people that you were trying to keep involved? What did that really look like? Well, it was, I, I remember there, there was a group, Ken Revisa, Terry Orlick, uh, Wayne Hollowell, uh, Keith Henschen. And, and they would have like these think tanks and they would do things and it was all applied. Okay. Um, Terry did some research and Wayne did some, but it was, I think they wanted an all applied group hmm. and then sure. sort of totally bind the researchers and a number of top researchers of Mo Weiss and whatever wanted sort of the research. So it was sort of, and again, I go back, I think that's why I was elected because I kind of, I think the applied people felt that I would tell them the truth and I was applied enough but to be really, I, I, this was my perception. I don't think I was in the in club. Like I wouldn't have been in the group with Terry, Ken. But I wasn't in the out club either. I wasn't out. To, they trusted me. And and even on the research side, I would think I was a pretty respected researcher. But I, I still get this. Sometimes when I go to NASPA, I go, well, not all my eggs in my career were in the research basket. And I feel a little inadequate. Because I said, if I just did research all the time and had NIH grants, you know, I'd be, you know, so living in this world between the two is, is not always as easy as you think. I'm glad I lived in it, but it's, it's tricky. Um, but so a lot of it was just sort of like, hey, Ken, don't leave. We need you here. The applied stuff will be in, you know, that type of thing. And, right. and I think I was in sort of a unique role. Um, uh, uh, Shane Murphy once said something when I did a lot of the Olympic committee work I was doing over the years. He, he said, and I never thought of my wealth, myself 
but I was chairing the sports science and on the coaching committee for the USOC or now USOPC. And he said, I'm a systems builder. So while we would be deciding things, I'd always be going, well, okay, how do we need to set it up, you know, to go forward? I remember, you know, like with ASP and certification, in the early days, it was like, okay, well, we cannot afford to adjudicate. We brought somebody in from the APA, and they had a child molester in Canada in jail who sued the APA for taking his membership. And it was an open and closed case, but it caught this was 30 years ago, cost the APA like 15 or 20,000. That would have broke the ass budget. So, you know, we just said the most we can do is censure people <laughs> and educate unless we, and then we had to get insurance for the board. So if they got sued, and when you're a really small organization working out of a piggy bank, those were, you know, there was some reality that came in that, you know, there's a brutal reality sometimes. We can't do everything we want. Let's get certification. It's going to be a compromise. Not everybody's going to get. Let's make it work. So I, I think if I look back, I think kind of the, the bridge between the d different factions and sort of the idealistic realist. And it, it kind of worked. And I don't know. I don't know if that helps you enough. I'm probably yeah. sorry. No, this is all very informative. I'm curious, you've mentioned a couple of times that you served as that bridge, which I think is so important even now, right? Anytime there's a divide to have somebody who can speak to both spaces. Was there anything specific beyond that that really motivated you to run for president, particularly at that time? I was trying to think of that when I got your pre-questions and I couldn't, I'm trying to remember what year I was president. So that's the first problem. <laughs> but I remember being really honored. You know, I was really into ask for me. I I grew up in NASPA and I liked it, but I really wanted to bridge research and practice. So ASP was a perfect fit for me. So it's sort of like when I got an opportunity, like I was so honored, like, hey, would you run? I go, oh, why, why, you know, why wouldn't I? <laughs> and, you know, like, and so there's a sort of selfish being honored part. I, I don't know if it's selfish, but it's sort of like, well, people are nice enough to ask me to. And then, but, but I think it was to sort of like, we need to get bridge research and practice. There's values to both. That was it. And, and even now, sometimes I'm critical now that we don't have enough science speakers. Mm -hmm. And I was the guy arguing in the early days that we needed to bring coaches and athletes in. <laughs> so to me, it's always sort of the balance. Um, yeah. So that, I don't know, that, that was probably it. Yeah. And yeah, I should so, say another, another, you know, when you were asking me before about what shaped me, with Glenn Roberts and I were the initial co-editors uh, for the sports psychologist and sort of shaping that journal and deciding what kind of articles fit. I remember uh, Terry Orlick, uh, who I felt that did some very, very innovative stuff, but the methods were always a little borderline. He wasn't as tight as other people, but he was so innovative. So we needed his stuff in those journals, <laughs> you know, and, and, and so, you know, again, kind of finding this, you don't want to put articles that aren't good methods in, obviously, but if something's really innovative, I'll take a shakier method than something's trivial with a really tight method. 
if that makes some sense. So just sort of those things. So, and we were doing things like Glenn did a lot of work. We were trying to get more international people involved. Uh, and if you get, you know, like at the time, if we had to have three copies of the manuscript, it was, you know, pre-electronic days. And if you were in Africa, you couldn't afford it. So we tried to kind of do that. Or if we thought somebody had a pretty good uh, article from Asia or Africa in a second language, Glenn spent a lot of hours working with them, rewriting the manuscript in English so we could get him in. So, you know, so th those were pretty informative years for me. And uh, the other thing was the Weinberg and Gould book um, that, in fact, working on revisions now. Probably the, other than mentoring PhD students, that's probably the biggest thing, contribution. And, you know, we didn't, had no idea it would be as successful as it's been. I don't know who follows us. It, it's going to be difficult because the amount of literature now we're finding on searches when we go to revise it used to be, you know, we vet the literature and there'd be four or five new articles. Now there's like 30 in each chapter. And I don't know if anybody can be a generalist anymore. Uh, you know, it's like you're a motivation researcher, not even that, your self-determination theory or something else. So this explosion in knowledge now, I think, is an interesting thing. And then how do we synthesize it and integrate it? And... You know, so it's, 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 I think it's interesting. It affects a lot of things we do. Like if you look at AF certification, the different eight areas, you know, depth versus generality. Yeah. Interesting. Dan, you uh, mentioned kind of a couple things about bridging the gap with the applied to the research, which um, is interesting that even at that time it was there after you just broke from a research organization or a more research organization. And then you also said certification, which is a huge accomplishment. Do you have anything else that you aim to accomplish during that time as presidents or that you would say are your main accomplishments? And I know there's a wide range of people who worked on those things, but any other noteworthy things that you feel like you accomplished? And I say that understanding that you were also running the conference, that you were running membership services, that you were doing all of those things too. You know, if I, uh, if I remembered it, I would have went back and read my presidential address. Oh, the man. presidential addresses were in the journals back then. Wow. And so you probably, uh, and I remember, I mean, there were some fun things like I wanted insurance. I mean, uh, that didn't happen until 15 years later. I projected we'd have a conference in Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> it took 15 years, uh, but it was sort of aspirational with some of the combinations of, um, you know, uh, I think the big thing was to get the certification. That was like all, in, it was just a mess yeah. to get everybody on board. And I don't mean a mess in a bad way, but just you put a whole bunch of smart people in the same room and they all value some common core, but they all have their own thing. It's like a kin department. If you have an exercise physiologist, a biomechanist, a sports psych person, mm -hmm. And you, you push them to, to cut people. I'm going to cut the sports like person last. The physiologist is going to cut. You know, I mean, you, you went into that area because you identify with it. So getting everybody on the same page or to compromise, yeah, uh, I think, is, uh, is it's a challenge. Hmm. It's funny. In my classes, I always tell my students, I may be a little bit biased, but I think my course is the most important course you'll take during your entire undergrad experience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I'm, but I, but also kind of recognizing that is helpful. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah the, of course. Why would 
if you became an exercise physiologist, you probably thought that was the most important area of kinesiology. Or if you came, became a clinical psychologist, you thought helping people with disorders is important. So recognizing we all have these bias, you know, it's, it's kind of the value of a lot of the DEI with implicit bias, trying to make it more explicit. To me, that's kind of what we need to kind of do with, today it's, and appropriately so, focused on race and other gender and other things. But I think there's a lot in terms of areas of study, you know, mm. like people sometimes can be biased uh, relative to areas of study. Absolutely. Yeah, that's very fair. Well, I got to be honest, this is one of my favorite questions that we're going to ask you today. Um, this is our story break. So we would love to ask you to tell us a funny story, a fun story from your time in the field. Anything goes, uh, whatever you want to share with us that brings a smile to your face and bonus points. Now I will say the points are more like whose line is it anyway, where the points don't really count, but bonus points. If you involve another ask member in your story. I got a bunch of them, but, um, we were on the board when I was president of ASP. And we, there were a lot of thorny issues, and we'd have these meetings and we'd talk about things. And we went down this rabbit hole for about a half hour. And it was just like, it made no sense when we got to the bottom. So I convinced everybody unofficially to suspend time and pretend we never had the last 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and then we just started where we were, like, it was like 2.30. So we just went back and picked up the minutes at 2.00. <laughs> well, I should have put time traveler in on your introduction, Dan. So I'll go to Robert's Rules of Order, like, you know, Hall of Shame for that one. But it was just like it was, we were down this road and it didn't make any sense. So I go, oh, maybe we should just forget like we had this last 30 minutes. Of conversation. <laughs> and, oh. go, and we didn't have any emotions. It wasn't, you know. It wasn't like we we're getting rid of something, but it was like, let, let me just pretend we never had this discussion. <laughs> that was one. Uh, Weinberg and I go way back, and uh, he was doing his presidential address, and, and and actually, they're always important. But I think in those earlier days, the presidential addresses were took on a lot more meaning because you were real. You had a lot more power to shape the organization then. Um, but Bob was having some problems, you know, and I roomed with him and we we're good friends. So he was having vision problems and he was worried about reading his notes and he was, you know, double vision. And obviously I was very concerned, but then you have to know Bob and my relationship. So I go, well, Bob, I could stand behind you and you could move your lips and I could read your talk <laughs> or, or like, hey, Bob, why don't we change your talk to... Weinberg's double vision view of ASP for the future. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so so I, I have a unique way of providing social support to my <laughs> So the double vision talk, that was one. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and, and again, I, I'm sharing with you, and it's tricky, but there was another time back in those days you'd get like you know, $10 for a per diem if you came in, somebody's plane was late and we're on the board and it was like, I should get the per diem. Somebody, they, somebody gave them like $5 because they weren't there for breakfast or something. And it started <laughs> down this like crazy argument. 
And, you know, I'm going, so I took like $10 out of my wallet and gave it to the person. And that was it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we're done. We're not. So so sometimes it's just like, okay, let's not go down the rabbit hole. Peacemaker, Dan Gould. I like it. Yeah, well, (laughs) I probably, again, Robert's Rules of Order. Actually, what's weird is I think you sort of need to have all those rules and follow them. But at the same time, sometimes it's just like there's some common sense. And I know if there was really common sense, it would be more common. But <laughs> but sometimes you just need to make things work. Yeah. And not be going down these places and having arguments that you really don't need to. And, you know, right in the, uh, Eric, you know, I wrote that book uh, the, the last year on, like, my experiences. But one of mine is politically, I learned, you need to be politically astute. Like what I said about if you're on the executive committee and you're going to bring something, it's a little different now because in those days you brought it to the organization or the floor debate. Now it's a lot, but you still, I could paralyze ASP if I started bringing Robert's Rules of Order at the business meeting. Uh, you know, so it, so you need to be politically astute. Okay, if we're going to bring something to the floor, who are the key players in the organization? I got to get behind it. And at the same time, you can't become a politician, you know, in the bad sense of the word, um, and be a slave to rules and other things. So I don't know, it's a weird, it's sort of a weird, you know, thing. It's like, I got to be politically astute, but not a politician. I got to follow the rules, but let's not follow them if they're taking us down some stupid area that Hmm. we don't need to be going. So random thoughts from Dan. (laughs) <laughs> and and, no, and, and what made me think of that, actually, just to finish that off, is one of the things I put in this book I wrote that I've learned both as a department member and as a professional organization. If you're in a leadership position, you're going to make some enemies just be, if you're a really good leader, just because you had to make decisions. So three of you are vying for money and one can get it. Well, the one who gets it are pretty happy and the other two you know, aren't, aren't, you know, not necessarily vindictive, but you didn't get it. And over the years, so I've always believed you don't need to make enemies that you, you're going to make some enemies. And I don't mean this in a terrible, terrible way, but people, some people aren't going to like you or you'll make some organizational enemies because you made tough decisions. Yeah. You don't need to be making enemies when you don't need to over some trivial matter that really, like the $10 thing, like this is stupid. Here's $10, done, let's move on and talk about the purpose of the organization. You know, so to me, it's sort of like, I don't want to make, in your career, you're going to have some enemies. I hate to even say it. Don't need to be making them if you don't need to. So in, in a department meeting or, oh, I really against that issue, but I really think about it. Eh, it's not really that big in my scheme of things. I'll let them win on this one. I don't need to be fighting over this. I'm saving mine for the big battle. Mm-hmm. So I think that's such a valuable reminder for all areas of life of know when to fight and know when to just yeah. step back and laugh and go back to being friends and move forward. Yeah. Yeah. 
Dan, I want to shift the gears again. So um, I kind of want to look past or kind of look back. And so it sounds like you've been there except for the first meeting. Um, the entire time asked has kind of been around, but I want to get your idea of in what ways do you feel like the field has evolved, especially since your time is, it's kind of, uh, coming as a professional member, at least you're going to be in the field. I know for a long time moving forward, but at least in academia. So what are your thoughts, both good and bad about that evolution of the field since you've been involved in it? Um, that's a real good one. It's, uh, I have a lot of like mixed emotions on some like certification, has really gone great in the sense of it's grown. You know, there's problems always inherited in it, but, you know, the certification standards, I think it's had its biggest effect on graduate programs and identifying, like, the task analysis and what students need to know, et cetera. Um, so on one hand, I'm pretty happy with that. Uh, on that end, kind of the conflict I have with it it has sort of become a paper chase, you know, like, and I guess any certification would need to be, but you got to like document everything. And, you know, it's like, like from day one. Um, but I go with that with the federal tax form. I hire somebody to do my tax because it's complicated. So I, I guess sometimes I, I think just asking the question, how can we make this not easier in terms of standards, but easier in terms of the process? And recognize, you know, in terms of fairness to everybody, it's really hard because we're not a clinical psych program where faculty are paid to supervise their students. So our, you know, our mentor part is difficult. It's sort of mentoring, but, you know, it's not like I get a course released to mentor people. And I think the organization's done the best it can with that. But that's probably the weak link right now is, you know, like certifying somebody because they check off well on paper, but you haven't seen them. Yeah. You know, in, in an ideal world, send in three videos of you doing your best work <laughs> in some committee. And so, so, again, there's pros and cons to everything. I'm, you know, I think that's been a big development in the field. Um, so I'm pretty happy with that. Probably the one thing I, I, I'm... A voice this in some of the past president's meetings it is have we gone too practitioner oriented and not enough science oriented uh, like there was a time we'd have Albert Bender uh, DC you know some pretty big researchers come in uh, and again I would be one arguing we need to bring coaches in and we need to bring people in the field in but sometimes now I feel that's all we're bringing in and I'd like to see kind of a combination uh, a little more with that. Um, that. That's my opinion. So, you know, take it for what it's worth. Um, that's what we ask. So that's what we're asking for. That's okay. Yeah. That, uh, I, I, I just think everybody sometimes needs to step back and sometimes think, like I know the past presidents have had some friction with the board in recent years. And I think part of it is, again, if you, we have a past president's luncheon and you come in and give us these ideas and the presidents react and they're all over the place in some ways. So I guess sometimes just everybody's staying cool and it's not about you as a person. It's sort of like, okay, there's different perspectives. Let's get everybody's perspective. And, and going forward, um, 
I, I don't know enough on this, but how as I remember reading a study like you have a mom and pop grocery store and then you got two of them and then you got bought out and you have 10 of them. And the leader that started it isn't necessarily the leader you need 10 years later. You know, it's a different skill set. And I wonder with ask sometimes is we've evolved. And, you know, some of the past presidents sometimes, well, back when we did it in the day 100 years ago, and is it, it's a different organization now. And I, I think some discussions would be, are we big enough to have a full-time executive director like American College of Sports Medicine? And it, in a lot of those, like we're advisory, we're like a board of trustees that hires and fires the executive director, but in many ways they're carrying out the tasks of the organization. So in fairness to everybody, I think we're somewhere, we're not quite there where we have a full-time executive director, but we have the management group. Um, and how we sort of chart those courses. It'd be also interesting, should we elect the president or executive for more than one year? Like a two or three year term. It's pretty hard to get anything done as a president in a year. Like the certification happened on my watch, but Bob Weinberg and people before me did a lot of work to sort of set that up. Um, you know, those would just be some things. That's great. Thanks, Dan. Any reaction? I guess I'd be interested in making this more to a, uh, the old guy walking to school a hundred miles in the snow. <laughs> Up hills both ways, right? Yeah. In Oswego, New York, that's not unheard of. <laughs> oh, um, I would definitely agree with you, Dan. I think there is a lot of value in thinking about who are the leaders that needed to be in that first era or that first environment that's there and who are the leaders who need to be now. Um, I just think about like the skill set that even you mentioned earlier of, you know, you have to organize a conference, you have to make sure members are paying services, you have to do those. And now a lot of those tasks are taken from other areas. And so now it's a different skill set almost that you need for being in that executive role as well. And so it's not to say we devalue those individuals who have done that, that, that foundation laying, because I think they were critical to where we are, but thinking now of not necessarily what have we had in the past, but what do we need moving forward in the future? Yeah. And I think some of that is, it's interesting too, because like as I've gotten older, one of the things I've struggled with is what values do I adhere to because they pass the standard of time? And how do I need to change with where we're at? I mean, actually, I'm doing research on generations these kids, and I talk as a coach. How do you change to connect today? But what things do you not change because yeah. they've been here from, you know, Plato to now? Yeah. Um, and, uh, it, you know, some of that is, and, and it may be some big picture questions. What's the role of the business meeting? It's pretty much a rubber stamp now and give some awards versus are there issues we want the whole membership to struggle with or like the treasurer's report. And in fairness to the board, they say, well, you can read it online, but nobody brings up about something about the treasurer's report. According to Robert's rules, you could. You could say, I, I'd like that. I think the board would go crazy if we did that. But... Um, yeah, so I think maybe big picture, like what, how are we getting feedback on certain things? I, I actually think the boards have done okay. I just think there's sort of a generation, some rifts sometimes. 
Um, they assume we don't get it because it's a different era. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the older folks assume they don't get it. And it's probably somewhere in between. Sure. Where do you think Aston and the field are going, Dan? Wish I knew. Um, the clientele has really changed. And this goes back to making your biases and explicit that are implicit. Coming from a, a exercise science kinesiology background, we, we're losing a lot of influence. Uh, where we, ASH probably exists because of kinesiology and exercise science. All those initial presidents, you know, they were funded in, indirectly by their universities and support. And now is, and I'm not sure if this is good or bad, but uh, one of our board members for many years ago, Dan Kirchner, I'm a clinical psychologist. He always said, ASP wasn't designed, bigger isn't necessarily better. But I think we've sort of fallen in the trap today that bigger is better. Hmm. And, and on one hand, when you're trying to have scale and scope relative certification and make the experience better for millions of athletes, you need scale. On the other hand, you know, how do you balance? So um, I, I don't, you know, I, I look and I see exercise, science, kinesiology having a lot less influence because our membership has grown so much. I don't know what the breakdown is now, but I think we'd maybe be a third or less, I'm guessing. Um, I would agree with that. Uh, and what implications does that have? Um, how, you know, that type of thing. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a very different organization. Uh, I, I'm pretty devoted to it. I've never missed a conference. But I'm, you know, I'm tired of in past presidents meetings say we need some scientists presenting and then not seeing them. So probably not going to say anything this year. I'm tired. Yeah. Um, and maybe Lindsay will, you know, different orientation will take it. But that's also my view and that maybe the organization's at a different place now. And then there's some brutal reality discussions we not we probably need to have. Are we really a performance enhancement organization? And we don't want really so the old breakdown of social psych and exercise psych. If you're a top person in exercise psych, you go to behavioral, you don't even go to kinesiology meetings, you go to behavioral medicine. You know, um, Bonnie Berger, who you know, was very exercise oriented. It's gotta be pretty hard for her. Mo Weiss doesn't even come anymore because they don't see the social psych emphasized enough. It, it, does the organization, you know, just pay, play lip service? Are we really going to do something? And, and do we want to balance across those? I think there's arguments for both. We're going to be the performance enhancement group. That's what we do well. That's where the membership's growing. Let's not play around with these other areas. Versus, you know, it's kind of like a department. You know, what uh, subfields of psych or what subfields of kin do you have? How do you find um, I think some discussions about that might be good. Yeah, absolutely. Like, oh, sorry, I don't think your area is really fit us anymore. I think you're right. Those are difficult conversations, but um, I can see them being really valuable as well. Yeah, so I guess that'll be off the top of my head. And the only other one, I guess, again, this is coming from a bias of a kinesiology program or exercise science or whatever alias we use. 
if, if we don't, I see the sports science in the U.S. is on a fast decline because we don't have a, you look at the Canadians, they all have big grants coming from the social science for sport. The U.S., I've gotten money over the years, but I have to do it backdoor. And universities are pretty much driven now by external funding. And Ken's sport studies are going to be declined. And you see them declining at the major universities because they're not tied to NIH money or other kind of things. Um, and so I'd like to see ASP try to do more to promote. Uh, and again, this is tricky because it's the Ken side of it. But to promote like grants and promote stuff to help Ken have graduate programs. And my prediction is the real big universities will have a lot less. And a lot of mid-range, uh, Illinois State, uh, and no offense, but Boise, you know, Georgia Southern, will have programs, but they tend not to have PhDs. And that's where I see the problem coming. I, I don't have an answer. Even in kinesiology, our curriculums now are shaped not by student needs. They're shaped by what faculty can get what grants. Yeah. And then they come in and then your curriculum ends up getting shaped. So. Well, and I think that's something even, because I would agree, I think Boise State is in that middle tier. And even here, there's pressure to get those external grants. And so I can't imagine what at that, that R1 level is really going to be like. But, but I guess ASP, could a division of ASP really be, how do we help people, regardless of where you're trying to get grants? Now, we have through the foundation some things, but do we have a lobbyist? We, we've tried to get lobbyists working for the certification, but do we have a lobbyist trying to get money in Washington for, you know, performance research or other kind of things? Um, to me, that would be healthy for the field going forward because some of these effects, you know, uh, you're, you're going to see, see, you know, Bob Weinberg retires, I retire, other people retire. Are we being replaced by sport people or being replaced by exercise people? Which, again, I'm not against exercise or health, but it's just sort of the reality we're living in. Absolutely. So given your opinions on where the field is going, what advice do you have for students and new professionals entering into the field? Spoken from the true rookie here. <laughs> no, no. Um, going back to what I said before about some principles stand the test of time. Do study something you're passionate about. Because if you're not passionate about it, you're probably not going to be able to sustain your motivation through the bad times. Or you'll, you, know, you see that sometimes with people that are doing research for the wrong reason and they get tenure and then they really aren't doing much after they're tenured. Because I think they were doing research because they got pressured to do research. Um, it, 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 so I think find what you're passionate about. Like a good example, I probably could have been more successful with grants if I changed. But that wasn't my passion. That wasn't why as a 15-year-old wondering how to motivate the unmotivated or help people with anxiety. So, so to me, it's find something you're passionate about. Then you have to have the brutal reality discussion of whether I can, can I get a job or what's that, you know, can I support it? 
So it's not just like an idealistic passion and I'm going to do this and nobody's going to hire me. You know, and I always tell students too, it's like, um, I was having this discussion with a student the other day. Uh, uh, it could be male or female, it doesn't matter, but she got married this summer and her husband's a teacher. So that's allowing her, and given the teacher shortage, he teaches math and science. So they can pretty much go anywhere. That gives her a lot more latitude in looking at jobs if she gets an offer about whether she wants to take it or not. I've often said that if I married you and you had a good job and I wanted to start a consulting business, I probably could do it because I didn't have to pay health insurance, etc., for four years, which is very different than them. But that's I mean, my oldest son's an entrepreneur got done with college, he decided to go to California to try to be an actor. He had no debt, he wasn't married. He ended up doing three years as an agent and now he's an entrepreneur. If, any, if you need any false eyelashes, I can get you a deal on those. <laughs> Magnetic, uh, or wigs, I can help you with that. But, um, but he was in a real good position to do it because he didn't have debt from school. You know, he and sounds funny, but didn't have a steady girlfriend at the time. You know, he could take that risk. So I, I'm always telling people, you got to look at your life goals and the fact that you know, some of that's going to shift some of this. Pretty critical. Um, kind of trying to decide what level you want to be at. I've had students at really liberal arts schools. You're never going to make as much money as if, if you're at a Ohio State. In, in a, but you have a lot more life balance. Okay, kind of like what you like, those kind of things. Well, those would be a couple offhand. Uh, you know, the one I said before, don't make enemies if you don't need to. By arguing about trivial stuff, that really doesn't matter. Save your arguments for the big ones. Um, in fact, I was just talking to everybody. Faculty sometimes get like... You may not get a department chair you like. Well, you don't have to be protesting every day because they're probably not going to get rid of them until their contract is up. You better figure out how to lay low, get your work done. <laughs> There's a time to fight. But, you know, this sounds funny. Pick your battles carefully and pick battles you can win. You know, so those would be a couple. I don't know if any of those help. Um, you have a follow-up? Because I love students. I don't know if I have any follow-ups. I think that studying what you're passionate about is probably one of the most helpful things that I could hear right now in my second year of graduate school looking at PhD programs. And I'm sure a lot of people in my, at least my like immediate cohort would probably say the same thing. So. And, and the other thing I guess I, I'd throw to that now that you said that would be I've always bought into the mentor approach. Pick the mentor, even over the university. I mean, you don't want to go to a bad university, but if you find the right mentor that you connect with, that's where you want to be. And uh, that's really going to help you. Now, you know, it's, it's difficult. Like about over the years, I've been pretty lucky. I get you know, like really good students. I feel so guilty in the spring because we'd be rejecting people who I thought looked better than I did when I applied. 
And you know, I mean, it's, it's just I can only take two when I have six good ones. You know, so, but if, and a lot of times, you know, I, I look at the academics and everything, but I look at the fit. So if you and I get on well, we click well. Um, I, I don't think she'd mind me, but Dana Volker is at West Virginia now, former student. Dana and I got on really well. Like Dana was an exceptional student coming out of Penn State. Really, really good student. But Dana is like, uh, and first I, I just love Dana. She's just, but she's driven and she's serious and she can be perfectionistic. So I was a great match for her because one, I got a lot of work done and she was a good worker and it was a fit. But I recognize early, I'd joke around with her. I'd keep it loose. I'd keep it. And, and I did that because that's sort of who I am. But it was, I think it really helped her. She would have been productive no matter who her advisor was. She's that good. But if she had to really serve a, a very serious sort of driving advisor and you put it with her personality, she might have an ulcer. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind she would be successful, but sort of at what cost? So to me, that's a good example of the academic side. And do I like this as a person? What's the fit? Like I, if I didn't feel anybody had like a, a pure love of sport, I wouldn't take them. Like, you know, they, that's the sort of passion. Um, I always, besides all the academics, which is obviously really important, I'd look at it. You know, did you have a leadership position in sport? Were you a captain? Were you a club president? Um, uh, uh, the, the X factor. Like, I was lucky enough to be at places where everybody had pretty good grades. And I'm looking for the X factor. I got that from a swim coach. But what's the factor? that's going to set you apart from everybody else. Dan, I love listening to you. And uh, it makes me kind of think, what do you hope your impact on the field will be? Um, probably the biggest impact, I think, would be like the students I've gotten to work with, especially the ones that uh, went on. I think I was impacted by Reiner Martin, you know, and I've been even impacted by a person I ever met, Cole McGriffith, and reading his stuff in the archives and kind of modeling myself at some of his things. Um, so that would be one. The other would be the probably the Weinberg and Gould. Uh, like, I'm I, I mean, in Italy this summer at FEPSAC, and I'll always run into people. Well, I, uh, that was the book that got me interested in sports psych. Which is crazy because it's probably never helped me at all in terms of merit raises at being at a major university or anything. But it's probably had the single biggest, like we get people telling us that all the time. Um, and we, it was funny, we never wrote the book thinking it would sell. I mean, we, it was another funny thing. I once got a royalty check for like an edited book I did of minus $10. <laughs> <laughs> they must have returned some <laughs> I, I owed them money um, but that would be it um, I mean some some of the impact you just never know uh, hopefully I've been a good model um, I know we, we, Eric when you came when we had like the think tank tied with my retirement um, uh, 
don't know how to say this. I make mistakes. I get mad. I'm not, you know, my wife will tell you, far from perfect. Um, but I think I got on pretty well with a lot of people. You know, I think I, again, first, I figured out early that if I was going to, as an athlete, if I was going to work really hard, I want to have fun. It's a lot easier to work hard if you have fun. And so I think I've modeled that in my career, whether it's being on the ass board or at the university. So, you know, so to me, that whole orientation, work hard, take the work serious, don't take yourself so serious, sort of get a life, have fun. Um, uh, I, I think another thing I'm pretty proud of, whether it's in our faculty meetings or other places, and I was always hesitant to do this, but sometimes I'm not afraid to identify the elephant in the room. And I'll say, okay, nobody's saying this, but here's where we're at. I don't have the answer, but here's the real issue. And that's paid off pretty well over the years of just being like honest. And, but it also in a way that's not threatening, but like, okay, a, a good example on a faculty, we had to make uh, cuts. I, this is early during my career. And we had a health, physical education, rec department, and we had to cut faculty. I was an assistant professor. And I, we voted to cut recreation. And I remember some people who were the strongest advocates kind of held their hand. I, I put my hand right up. because, uh, And I liked the people in rec, but I, I, I didn't want to, if I voted for it, I needed to show it. And I needed to tell them why. And I wish I didn't have to. So I think sometimes, sort of, again, the, a positively oriented, brutal reality. <laughs> you know, I don't, that's weird the way I said it, but podcast should be interesting with that. <laughs> Very kind of off the wall, out of left field. But your generation, when you write reference letters, reference letters have changed in that they're pretty meaningless today. People are afraid, like Reiner Martins would write, Dan Gould needs to work on his writing. And they wouldn't reject me from the job. And now you see these glowing letters. So I kind of actually find letters are really difficult to interpret. I mean, I won't write it for you if I'm negative. And if I write it for you, I won't give a like a, a an assessment of here's my strengths, here's my weaknesses. So that would be one for everybody is to try to sit down and look at our strengths and weaknesses. Like I did this right in this Reflections book I did and like one re uh, weakness for I, I think it actually stems when I was a wrestler and our team was brand, brand new and nobody had knew anything. We got pinned so quick that I was somewhat risk aversive. And I think I carried that through my life a little bit. And I always would do a little safer study versus I wish I did a little more intervention work. But in the era I came up with, if it wasn't significant, it wasn't going to get published. And I had some early research that didn't make it. Um, and I wish I got a little braver, um, you know, so I'm not proud of saying that. And I'm very not ashamed of what I've done, but I wish I did a few more intervention things. But I, was, I think I was a little risk aversive, thinking that, okay, I wouldn't get rewarded for it if it didn't come out. Um, it's a different era now, but I think just taking a look at yourself. Um, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? Uh, getting other people to say that is helpful. I'm trying to think of anything else. I think that would be about it from my end. Eric, you want to add anything? You know me. 
I I just want to say that uh, the first time I met Dan, I walked up to him as an undergrad at an ASS conference, and I said, you were the person who helped write my book. I am so excited to meet you. And I never would have thought that I went from that to being a student to having you as a mentor to now calling you a friend, Dan. And so it's just been a really amazing transportation. And I, uh, I thank you for all that you've done. Well, the friend thing's probably a little too far. Why don't you're acquaintance? <laughs> I'll take that. I'll take, I'll take acquaintance. That's fine. I, I'm okay with that. I'm going to actually put that on my CV as acquaintance <laughs> of Dan Gould. That's still a line item. So I'll throw actually, that I'll give you a really good story as we round out here. Linda Petlikoff, who was at Boise before Eric, did her PhD with me. And Linda was my age and came back to school. She was a math teacher and long story. But we were working in Illinois and I, I just... Coleman Griffith was this my hero and a big influence. So I, I teased Linda like she dated Coleman Griffith, <laughs> who was in the 1925s. So I'm at an AFERD or Shape America convention, and I'm in an elevator, and I meet a bunch of Boise State undergrad students. And I go, oh, hey, one of my students, Linda, former students, Linda Pelikoff is going to take the position there. Oh, yeah, we met her on, uh, when she interviewed. We really liked her. And I go, yeah, you will. She's a really good teacher. But you got to do me a favor. When she does the history of sports psych, could you raise your hand and ask if she dated Coleman Griffith? She does the first class, and these kids did it. I was so proud of them. Dr. Pelikoff, did you date Coleman Griffith? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Dan, thank you again for your openness, your honesty, your transparency, and all that you have done sharing the field and all the time and effort you've devoted to the sports psych field and to the people you've worked with and your your students as you've gone through the years. Um, I want to end this podcast with saying we've asked, Dan has answered, and we'll see you all next time.